It was uh, just over a month ago that I got into a 26-foot moving truck, revved the engine, and thought, I have no idea what I'm doing with this thing. (laughs) But I managed to get it back to our apartment. I pulled in. I honked the horn. I was ready to go. And I was met with mocks and jeers. You see, the people who were helping us looked at the size of this thing and looked at the size of our apartment and said, in a very sarcastic tone, did you get a truck big enough, huh, Brian? Did you get a truck big enough? Little did they know the joke soon would be on them. You see, we started to pack, and about halfway through, we were very sloppy. We thought we had plenty of room. That's always the famous last word, right? Don't worry, we'll have plenty of room. And about halfway through, we realized we were in serious trouble with this thing. Now, I, I blame uh, our all our stuff on two major things. One is that when you have small children, they require an obnoxious amount of stuff. I mean, it's just ridiculous, all the things that they need. Um, And so that just took a lot of space. The other thing too, my lovely wife, uh, one of her hobbies is she actually refinishes furniture. She's really good at it. It's really actually cool to watch. But when you're moving, you'd have hoped that she'd have gotten into knitting, not refinishing furniture. I love, it was like, this is a good hobby, just not today. Um, But we, so literally by the end, every little nook and cranny you could find, you're jamming stuff, pushing in, hoping with everything you, you have that it would close. It was like a game of Tetris and we were losing badly. We're getting right to the end. Have you ever tried to make something fit in a space that was just way too small. Maybe it was a presentation you had to give that had 20 minutes worth of content that you had to make into five. Maybe it's a recipe that called for way too many ingredients for your bowl and you're just stuffing it in there. Maybe it's those pants you tried to put on after Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs) But we've all had those times where we just tried to pack a little too much into a space. And when we look at, we're starting a new series today in the book of Hebrews. We're going to be walking through Hebrews to look at uh, this. And the big theme here is the idea that He is greater, that Jesus is greater. Now, like many books in the the Bible, usually the first little section of the book serves as sort of a thesis statement. It kind of gives you sort of a direction, a map for where you're going through the rest of the book. So we're only in four verses this morning, but man, do these four verses pack a punch. Like I said, a lot of times what the authors of the Bible do is they give you sort of that opening thesis statement that helps propel us through the entire book. It sort of gives us in one sort of major theme everything we're sort of going to look at for the rest of the time. So let's get our heads wrapped around sort of where we're going to be going through this series. We're going to kind of give sort of that overview like the author does here, give the overview of where we're going and how we can make sense of everything that's being packed into these first few verses. So if you have a Bible, flip on over to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. If you you don't have a Bible, you can use the Bibles in front of you. Uh, We'll be starting on page 1254. So the book of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. We'll start uh, there and go till verse 4. It says this. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, 
sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited and superior to theirs. Wow, (laughs) that's a lot. How do we unpack everything in those short few verses that really is going to then become impacted over the entire book of the Bible? Well, hear me out here. Imagine that you are a Jew in the first century. Your father was a faithful Jew. Your grandfather was a faithful Jew. His father before that were a faithful Jew. And so you grew up hearing the stories of God's faithfulness to your people. You heard the stories of how God revealed himself over and over in many times and in many ways. You heard the stories of the prophets, Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, who were to speak the words of God in many times and in many places. You read the law of the priests who served as intermediaries between you and God, making atonement for your sins so that you could be right before God. You traced the lines of Israel kings who were to be a representation of the majesty, justice, and wisdom of God. See, God had established these roles in the Old Testament in order to reveal himself to his people, to show them what he was like. But the problem was that God had gone silent. You see, Israel's past is not a very happy past at this point. It's a very checkered past God sent prophets to speak his word, and yet the people nearly killed every one of them. Because of Israel's unfaithfulness, it brought about captivity and exile. The temple destroyed and the priesthood halted. Even after your people had returned to rebuild the temple, it failed in comparison to the original. In fact, the Bible tells us that when they dedicated the new temple, people openly wept at the dedication because It just failed to even remotely come close to the original. With exile came a loss in the kingship. Your people had since been controlled by a revolving number of foreign impressors who each appointed their own regional ruler, Rome just being the current one at the time. You had gone 400 years without hearing from God. No prophets, a very scaled-down priesthood, no kings. And yet there was an expectation, there was a hope that this silence would not remain forever, that God would once again re-engage with his people, reappear, re-come uh, back. And so you waited generation after generation, hoping that we would be the generation that God would re-engage and reveal himself once again for hundred years. And so you sit as a faithful Jew in the first century, hoping maybe this would be our chance. Maybe this would be the generation that would hear from God again. And then you hear someone read this letter. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Further on, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, if you were to hear these words, all sorts of connections would start to happen. 
God is speaking through this son like, like a prophet. And purification from sin, that's, that's priestly language. And sitting down at the right hand of the majesty, that's what kings do. And then it hits you. Who is this guy? Is he the one we've been waiting for? Now, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but we do know that it was written to Jewish audiences to encourage and show the connection between their history and the ultimate fulfillment of it in Jesus. It was written to remind us that Jesus is greater. Have you ever gone through a season where God felt silent? Where God felt far off? In your insert this morning, this is the first thing that you can fill in. Do you feel like God's ever been silent? Or he seemed far off? Where in your life, as we begin our Advent season, where in your life might you need to be reminded that Jesus is greater? Because for the Hebrew who desperately was waiting for God to speak, their whole paradigm would have to shift to grasp Jesus' fulfillment of everything they've ever known. What needs to shift in your life? Where have you given something away and you need to be reminded once again that Jesus is greater than everything? Hold that for a minute. Because right in the middle of all this talk of prophets and priests and kings, the author actually gives us an additional layer, which again, trying to pack so much into this, he actually gives us an additional layer of why they believe and what Hebrews is going to do throughout this book, why Jesus might be greater. He says two things. Number one, he says this, and this is verse three, first part of verse three. He says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact Uh, representation of his nature. Now the word representation is this very rare Greek word, which is karater, which means to impress or to stamp. So the idea is, is that when you have a stamp and you put ink or wax on it, that when you press it on a piece of paper or you press it on some wood or something, that the imprint that it would leave would be match exactly to the stamp itself. And so you could press something into anything and you would get the exact same representation when you pushed in as when you looked at the stamp itself. In biblical times, kings would actually wear this ring, this signature custom ring. It was their seal. And, they, and a king would never go anywhere without it. And they would, he would use this seal to stamp official documents or seal important documentation or, or edicts or decrees. And then he'd send them out into his kingdom. And so if you were to receive a, a decree from the king and you saw that seal, you would know this was official. This came right from the king's mouth. And in fact, it was so uh, important, or it, it, it held such authority in such weight that it was if the king was in your presence at that very moment, if that seal was there. These are the words of the king. And so the, the Hebrew writer uses, uses this word in order to show the connection between God and, and his son, that Jesus, it's as if the king of the universe took his seal, his stamp, and he imprinted into the world his seal, and when he pulled it out, there was Jesus, that Jesus is the print, the stamp, the seal of the very word of the king himself. Jesus is the imprint of God 
the very seal of God. And secondly, in the second half of verse 3, he goes on to say, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now again, if you're a Hebrew reader, this language of universe and word of his power would quickly remind you of the creation story in Genesis 1. I want to have you flip there because I want to show you the connection here a little bit. So flip all the way. The easiest thing you're ever going to do, flip all the way to the front of the book, to Genesis 1.1. Again, I want to show you the connection here because the author's doing something really interesting here that, that, again, this is written to a Jewish audience. So a Jew would read these words like universe and word, and they would put all these bells and whistles would begin to go off in their head, and they would think back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, verse 1. It says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now see what the author is about to do here. And God said, let there be light. Verse 6, And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters. Verse 9, And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. Verse 14, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. Verse 20, And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. Verse 24, And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image. So the Hebrew readers and the Hebrew rabbis, as they would read this, they would start to get the picture that the universe, according to Scripture, the universe was actually coming from the very word of God, and God said, and God said, and God said. That in some very real real way, uh, God spoke us into creation. By the power of his very word, we came to be almost like an author of a book whose words, who, who pens the characters into existence. The imagery here is that God, the great author, speaks us into creation. We exist because of the very words, the very power of his word. And God said, and God said, and God said. And so the author of Hebrews takes this idea to say, just as God spoke us into creation, this son is using the very power of the word to uphold the universe, to keep it going, to keep it running. Very clear connection if you were a Jew. You would see that connection right away, that this, this power, this imprint of God who uses the very word of God. Jesus, the imprint of God, with the power of God. That's your next fill-in. The imprint of God with the power of God. The very word that he speaks. Jesus is greater. And this would have just blown a reader in the first century away. So you're telling me that this, this, this Jesus, this son of God, so you say, is going to serve as the prophet to end all prophets, the priest to end all priests, the king to end all kings. This Jesus is the imprint, the seal, like a king, the the actual seal of your likeness in the world. 
and that is using the very word, the same power used to create the world, to bring us into existence. He's using that same word to uphold the universe and keep it running. Who is this guy? You see, Jesus is greater. And so for the Hebrew, their whole paradigm shift would have to happen in order for them to grasp and connect the histories, connect what was going on to say, man, there's something to this. There's something here. Now something neat about looking at this text during Advent is that the Gospel of John actually uses the same idea of God being the Word to communicate the power of Christmas. Flip over to John chapter 1. So that's one of the Gospels. Not First John, but John chapter 1, which is the very first part of our New Testament, about two-thirds of the way through. Something really neat that John does here to connect all this same understanding. In John 1, starting in verse 1, he says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now again, if you're a first century reader and you read this, all sorts of things would start to come up. First off, it starts with, in the beginning, which would immediately bring you back to Genesis again. You would already be thinking that in the beginning, you're starting your book the same way. Okay, what's going on here? And again, using the concept of word and in the beginning. In fact, as you read down through John, they double down on this creation uh, language. He uses all sorts of uh, words, <clears throat> all sorts of words like uh, uh, power and light and darkness and world. He's using all of these connections <clears throat> to point us back to Genesis, to say this word that was spoken, the power of this word. And then in verse 14, the sort of the, the punchline in, in John says this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You see, the Advent season is a season that, that declares the incredible truth that the word that brought creation into existence, the word that upholds the universe, that word becomes flesh and makes his home in our world. The Advent season reminds us and allows us to stand at the edge of the manger to peek in and to witness the very imprint of God. The Advent season reminds us that God doesn't remain silent because instead of sending more prophets to speak to God, and speak for God, he sp sent his son to speak as God. Instead of sending more priests to offer sacrifices for sin, he sent the final sacrifice who offered purification from sin. Instead of sending more kings to represent God, he sent the very seal of God. Jesus is greater. And what the Advent season allows us to do is to look in and to bear witness, to see with our own eyes this word become flesh. This word manifests itself to be like us. This very word that spoke creation to existence, that upholds the universe by the power of his word, the imprint of God 
in a manger, staring up at us, becoming like us, becoming like flesh. He is greater. I want to invite the band up as we just do a little bit of, a, of, of reflection on this. So I ask you again, during the Advent season, do you need to be reminded that Jesus is greater? I asked what shifts in your thinking, what shifts in your priorities, what shifts in your interpretation, what shifts in your schedule, what shifts in your very life might need to be turned so that this reality of Jesus being greater might actually be true in your life. Because it's one thing to say it, and it's a whole other thing to live it. Where might you need to be reminded once again that Jesus is greater? Is he greater than your drive to please everyone? Which results in overfilled schedules and commitments, especially at this time of year. Is he greater than that? Is he greater than the stuff you will buy, which will provide fleeting feelings of happiness, but not lasting joy? Is he greater than your need to be right, which keeps you in the bondage of resentment instead of the freedom of forgiveness? Is he greater than your need for control, which provides a false sense of security instead of a peaceful sense of trust. Where in your life do you need to be reminded that Jesus is greater? That we don't need prophets and kings and priests any longer because he fulfilled all of that, even greater than we could possibly imagine. That by the very power of his word, he keeps this universe running. He keeps you breathing. He keeps us sitting here even as I speak. So where do we need to shift? Where do you need to shift? Where does your family need to shift? So that more and more and more of your life can be a witness to this reality that Jesus is greater. Like the wise men, what do you need to bring before the Christ child? Lay it down and confess you are greater. What present do you need to present to to Christ's child and to say, I give this up because you're better than this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, the priests, and the kings at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, the imprint of God with the word of his power because he is greater. Let's pray. God, we need to be remembered of this short, simple idea over and over and over again. It's short, it's simple, but it is radical. God, where in my life am I not communicating this idea in, in my behavior and in my scheduling, and in my priorities, and where I spend my money. God, where for each of us has our lives not proclaimed this truth that you are greater? Where have our lives not shifted? Like the radical shift that would have to have happened for those first century hearers 
to really grasp this idea that everything they ever knew was shifting towards you. God, where in our lives do we need to reshift and to remove and to head a new direction? God, may this Advent season be a time where we can reflect on this Christ child, where we can peek into the manger and to see the very representation, the imprint, the stamp, the seal of God himself, and to be taken back by the majesty of what we are beholding. So Lord, may this not be another season where we just pass it up, where it goes by like a blur. Because of our schedules and our commitments and the things that we're doing, we will miss it. This radical truth that this word became flesh. So show us, God, in this season, where do we need, do we need to be reminded that you are greater? We give it all to you, God. In your name I pray. Light of the world, you step down into darkness. Open my eyes, let me see. Would you stand as we sing? Beauty that made this heart adore you. Hope of 